What power do family stories have to connect generations? How does one moment on a subway platform change the entire trajectory of a life? Each month at Hopewell Theater, questions like these are answered when a rotating cast of some of the most hilarious and moving storytellers around take center stage and tell all. Recorded live at Hopewell Theater in Hopewell, New Jersey, ladies and gentlemen, this really happened. Thank you. Welcome. I'm Joey Novick. Welcome to This Really Happened, where we tell stories that really happened. So that happens to be there. So uh, just by applause, how many people were here for our first storytelling show? I said by applause. This is not applause. Let's learn some directions here. So um, this is good, so you can all hear me. My name is Joey Novick, and I want to thank all the folks who came here tonight to the wonderful Hopewell Theater. And uh, this is a storytelling show, so these are all real stories told by real people. Which is great. This is fantastic. This is uh, just wonderful, and I am... Uh, a, um, we had a wonderful first uh, storytelling night, and there's plans for more of these. Uh, the next two shows, uh, Friday, November 2nd, we have an outstanding show. And the first Friday in December, is that December 7th? It's uh, the first Friday we are doing a uh, performance of The Liar Show, which is uh, four storytellers, each tell a story, and one of them is telling a lie. Three, three people are telling the truth, and one person is lying. And then uh, we take a little break. Then after the break, you as the audience get to interrogate the storytellers and guess who is telling the lie. So uh, that is always a fun night. That's been running in New York at the Cornelius Street Cafe for about uh, 15 or 20 years or so, and it really uh, is a great deal of fun. So buy tickets in advance. And uh, I thought I would tell a story. So. Um, in uh, 1948, my dad, Private First Class Bernie Novick, uh, comes back from uh, the Army, and he and my mother, Pearl Novick, they decide to get married. And on June, uh, July 4th, 1948, they got married, and spontaneously, my father decided to um, get everybody in our family, which is his sister and three brothers and mother and father, who could all touch their tongues to their nose. I don't know if anyone else can do this, I'm able to do that. What they decided to do is get everybody in the family for the first Novik tongue-touching-the-nose picture. <laughs> so you had eight full-grown adults standing in their tuxedos and their gowns, all getting their picture taken by a photographer. That photograph, my mother is very embarrassed to say, is in my parents' wedding album with all the other pictures. So this became a regular thing. Uh, the next time, I think about five years later, my uh, cousin uh, Melvin was having a bar mitzvah, and my Aunt Rose and my dad organized that again. All of the people who could touch their tongues to their nose decided once again to organize that picture. That picture is in his bar, his bar mitzvah album. This became a regular thing in the Novik family. Every time there was a wedding, a bar mitzvah, a Passover Seder, a funeral, any gathering of the people, there had to be that moment where all of the people were standing there touching their tongues to their nose for a picture. So, flash forward to 1963, I was nine years old, and my brother Paul is about to be bar mitzvahed in three weeks. I really want to be in the Novik touching the nose picture. However, at the age of nine, I am unable to do this. 
And I asked my father what the secret was. He said, well, I will tell you it's not genetic. What you have to do is you have to brush your teeth every day. <laughs> three and four times a day, clean your tongue, clean your teeth. Your tongue will slip up and you will be able to touch your tongue to your nose. So I'm thinking, I learned the secret. I'm brushing my teeth every day. I'm standing on my little stool and I'm going, and I would go, and I would try to do it every single day. I am brushing in school. I'm bringing a toothbrush with me. I am working really hard. About a week before my brother's bar mitzvah, I'm in the bathroom. I'm being a little, I'm very despondent because I haven't even been able to get this done yet. I'm brushing my teeth. I rinse my mouth out, and once again, I try it, and there, miraculously, my tongue touches my nose. I was so excited, I'm running up and down the stairs, the dog is barking, I'm showing my mother, I'm showing my father, my father's going, holy shit, I can't believe it worked. <laughs> I go into my brother's bedroom where he's studying his Haftorah, and I say to him, as all younger brothers should, I went, nah, 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 nah. I'm going to be in the tongue touching the nose picture and you can. Mm -hmm. Just then he takes his fist and he hits the bottom of my chin. Pain like you wouldn't believe, like worse than child, maybe not worse than childbirth, but it was, I mean, there is like every, every uh, uh, liquid coming out of my mouth. There's blood, there's saliva, there's other liquids. I have no idea, I, but I am only concerned with one thing, the fact that my tongue has so blown up that I can no longer touch my tongue to my nose. I'm running up and down, why did he do that? I can't touch my tongue to my nose now. Finally, my father calms me down sits me down in the kitchen, and I'm saying, why did he have to do that? I can't do And my father says to me, you know, your brother is just jealous of you. He has that really small nose from your mother's side of the family. <laughs> I'm not even sure if he is a Novik, which is something I didn't understand at that age, so <laughs> that was okay. So he calms me down, and um, eventually I was able to touch my tongue to my nose, and there I was a week later in, the, in my powder blue tuxedo, <laughs> standing there like that. Now, about 10 years later, my uh, cousin Alan is marrying his, uh, his uh, fiance Jennifer in a very, very she-she wedding at the top of the World Trade Center. There was a jazz band playing as people walked in for the cocktail hour. There was a multi 12-piece orchestra playing, but she had issued an order that there was to be no tongue-touching-the-nose picture at the wedding. So this, the way my, my Aunt Rose and my, my dad would usually do this is that my dad would go get the photographer and my Aunt Rose would organize the people. So my dad was trying to tip the photographer like three bucks to come over and take the picture. He's running after the guy with a three, with a five. Aunt Rose is organizing everybody on the steps. Then when they didn't come over, they disbanded. Then she organized again. Eventually realized that there was not gonna be that picture because the photographer had been told not to take that picture or else he would be fired. Now, you know, that moment in my family was always a very fun time. That was an absolutely fun moment that made us who we were as Noviks. Now, that, the fact that that did not occur on that date made my Aunt Rose so angry that she took her gift back. <laughs> or she actually took back what she thought was her gift. <laughs> when she got home and said, wait a second, George, we didn't give them a vase. She actually took back the wrong gift. And you know, 
God does work in mysterious ways because today Alan and uh, Jennifer are um, uh, divorced and they have two children, I think their names are Ethan and Jonathan, who can both touch their tongues to their nose. <laughs> and he is now dating a woman that I'm married who has a daughter who can touch her tongue to her nose. So there you go, God does work in mysterious ways. Thank you. So we have a great lineup of storytellers, people who have been uh, working at such wonderful storytelling locations like The Moth and um, Yum's the Word and at the Cornelia Street Cafe and Word Up, all really excellent places in New York and we brought them out here for you. So I want to bring out your first storyteller for the evening. Uh, she has been um, hosting a uh, regular storytelling show called Uncomfortable, and she's a comedian working comedy clubs also. Please welcome the story of Sammy James. Hi. How is everybody? Good, good, glad to hear it. Um, so I turned 30 in a couple months and I am very aware that this is not old, but I am also really, really impressed with myself for making it there. Um, so there are a bunch of things from my past and stories that I can think of, bad decisions and um, things I've lived through that I could tell you about, but there is a particular one that really stands out. So you may have noticed me with a cane. I have a chronic illness that I've struggled with for the past couple years. Um, and. Surprisingly, uh, despite that, I currently feel like I am the healthiest um, I have been emotionally and uh, mentally in my whole life. And I'm really, really happy to be here uh, because I almost didn't make it. And I actually owe me being here to a complete stranger. Um, so years ago, I was deeply depressed and I was struggling with so many things with my life, with PTSD and an eating disorder. And um, I was deeply, deeply uh, in pain. And I was deeply, deeply uh, in the closet as a queer and trans person. Um, and it got so bad that I actually made the decision that I was going to jump in front of a train. Now, we have clearly gone to a very dark space uh, to start your night off, but if you look for them, there are some signs for all of you that that is not what happened. <laughs> uh, but uh, I did, you know, gear up to do just that. 
and uh, it was three in the afternoon, and I remember this, and I went to the train station, and, you know, I was kind of numb, and I waited uh, for the train to start approaching the platform, and I see it off in the distance, so I take a deep breath, and I start taking steps. And the train is almost there. I am at that yellow line, and I'm about to step over it, when suddenly there is a hand on my shoulder. And I have been stopped from doing this. And I turn around to see a man, and I, I am filled with all of these emotions. Um, and I'm in shock. And it takes me a long time to like form words. But I finally say, thank you, to which this complete stranger responds with, yes, of course. There is no way I was going to let you Fuck up my commute. <laughs> and even, even in this state of shock, there is a little part of my, you know, my 22, 23 year old brain that recognizes, okay, that's funny. <laughs> and so, um, I could tell you that it was from that moment forth that I started putting my life together and everything changed after that. Uh, but that would be a lie. Uh, the thing is, that you know, chance encounter with this stranger did allow me to still be here uh, to put in the years of work that have brought me to this point. Uh, and it was actually that night that I came out to someone for the first time. Uh, I came out to my sister. Uh, she called me that night and she said, hey, happy birthday. Yeah, it was also my birthday. Uh, happy birthday to me, I'm still here. Um, and so she said that and it was kind of right after that that I came out to her. And as the years went by, I did slowly recover from all of these things that I thought were too strong for me. And now, years later, um, I'm a semi-professional comedian, I guess. Um, and I take the train a bunch of times every week um, to different cities and different venues. And I have slowly become 
a bit of a jaded commuter. And there are times where I'm waiting for a train that has been delayed and then delayed that I do wonder to myself, oh, is this going to be the day that I have to save someone's life and then yell at them? Is this a rite of passage that I have now inherited? Um, and uh, I hope not. But I do think of this man who saved me. And I wonder, what was his day like that day? And, you know, how is he right now? And I do feel a little thankful because he's why I'm here. And he's why you have this great story. And he uh, is why you have the end of this story because it was about a year ago and I was waiting for a train uh, to Trenton and it was three in the afternoon and I am sitting at a bench and I see someone two benches over from me that I can't and I don't know if he recognizes me, but I recognize him. And then, above our heads, we hear from the loudspeaker that the train we're both waiting for is delayed. And I look over at this man to hear him shout, Oh, this is going to fuck up my commute. <laughs> like, it's nice to see that he hasn't changed. <laughs> Sammy James, thank you. All right, uh, we're going to continue our storytelling night right now with a... Um, very funny woman. Uh, she's written a book called uh, uh, Fish Out of Agua. Very, very funny book. And she uh, has uh, played all of the uh, storytelling places in New York, such as The Moth and Yum's the Word and so on. Please welcome Miss Michelle Carlo. Keep it going for Joey Novick. My three years younger brother and I are so completely different. Sometimes it's hard for me to accept the fact that we both came out of the same womb. Where I say the glass is half full, he says it's half empty. If I say, let's do this, he'll say, hmm, let's not and say we did. While I am proud to be that rare, red-headed Puerto Rican Boricua, he is a self-described Republican. But no matter what has been going on in our lives, there have always been three things that we can agree on. The genius of Star Trek, 
the frustration of any general New York Mets baseball season, and the glory of the Lord of the Rings. And as over the years, our relationship has wavered between what I like to call a fond sibling tolerance and a watchful peace. And our paths also are widely divergent. While I went to art school, graduated, um, and moved out as soon as I could from the family apartment in the Bronx to a place in Brooklyn, which you could still do back then, my brother um, got a finance degree and a back office job on Wall Street, and he got a girlfriend, and his life was going on that fast track until he got laid off from his job. The girlfriend broke up with him and he moved back in with our parents for what was just supposed to be a little while. And then my father died, and my brother decided to stay on with my mom, be with her, for just a little while. And then my mom got sick, and he stayed with her. And that little while became 18 years. And while my life, it seemed, was expanding, all I could see was his was slowly and painfully shrinking and constricting and becoming more and more narrow. And of course, I, I go over to see them. I go up to the Bronx. I take the two-hour subway trip just about every weekend. And I do, you know, I bring groceries. I bring my cheerful self. I do for my mom the things that it's better for one woman to do for another. But, um, you know, there have always been things that um, were, let's just say, that, that would get in, in the way of my brother and me. Because I would, we would just have arguments over what we were supposed to be doing with my mom and for my mom. And one day, um, I'm up there, and we, she needs something. Like, old people always need things, right? So we decided to go to Parkchester. There's a Macy's there. It's about a mile away from, from where we live. And I get the bright idea that we should just walk through the old neighborhood and not take a bus or, or a subway to a couple of stops to get there. And my brother's like, why would you want to do that? And I'm just like, come on, it'll be cool. And I figured, look, gentrification hasn't hit that part of the Northeast Bronx yet. Come on, it'll be fun. So he goes, all right. So we're walking, and at first, yeah, it is fun. I mean, like, totally. The neighborhood still basically looks the same as it did in the 1970s. And it was, became this fun memory game of like, oh my god, remember who lived in this house? Remember who lived in that house? Oh my god, that's the haunted house. And it still looks haunted. And then, oh, that's the yard where um, there were the carnivals, the San Maria and, and Sacred Heart, because the neighborhood was all full of Catholic schools. And there was all, yes, and that was the time that we took the Ferris wheel, and Daddy was the one that got sick. And we're just like laughing and laughing. And it's finally like, you know, we're having like a good conversation together where we're not at odds. And then we passed by the corner where this candy store was, where all the neighborhood kids would gather after school. And I just stopped, boom because I just run smack into this memory. I'm nine, and my brother's six. And we're walking home from school as, oh, by ourselves, which is what people did in the 1970s, you know. And um, I'm a, with my friends, a little bit behind my brother and his friends. And when my brother and his two friends get to the candy store, these, uh, these other two boys come from around the corner and surround them. It was an ambush. Things like that happened 
all the time back then. Bullies would just appear out of nowhere and they'd you know, call you names, shake you down for your Milky Way money, maybe push you around until you either fought back or you started crying and then, and then they won. That it had happened to me also when I was that age, but only as maybe you can tell I'm a little bit aggressive and I would fight back and it stopped. But this is the first time it happened to my brother. And somehow my brother's friends disappeared. They got out of the circle. And my brother is now surrounded by three of them. And they're pushing him, and they're calling him a baby, and they're calling him other names. And I remember my brother's thin, pale face, and he's big eyes looking up at me. And he's like, Michelle, help me. And I was like, no. No, you have to fight back. Show them, show them. And he doesn't fight back. And they, I don't intervene until finally they push him down to the floor. And that's when I'm like, all right, I have to step in. And because, you know, I'm bigger than a six-year-old and have a better vocabulary of curse words, they just run off. And my brother just like latches onto me and he's crying and crying. And I'm just like, stop crying. Stand up, walk. Don't let them see you cry or you win or well, they win. And this all just starts spilling out of me, and uh, this, this whole thing, and my brother's looking at me, and I'm like, what, are you, what is going on? And I'm just like, I'm sorry, I'm sorry, and I know it's my fault, because if I didn't do this, I, I ruined your life. I mean, because the reason why you're so insular, and, 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 and you, you're not adventurous, and, and you really didn't do anything with your life, and you're just like doing things with, with mom, and it's like, it's my fault, and I'm sorry, I'm sorry, I'm sorry. And my brother looks at me and he goes, what the hell? What's wrong with you, Michelle? I don't remember that shit at all. What, you making stuff up? You should be a writer, you know. You'd be really good at making up stories. And this infuriates me because just the simple fact that he's not acknowledging my apology or my memory, I just like, I'm just infuriated. And I'm like, oh yeah, well, you know, at least I, maybe I have to come over and I have to pay these bills and I have to buy this food and whatever and I get to see mommy, but at least when I leave, I get to go home and have my life and you don't got one because you are stuck. And my brother looks at me and he goes, I'm sorry you feel that way, Michelle. I don't think I'm stuck. I don't think I'm stuck at all. And because there's really nothing more to say at this point, is there? We just continue walking in silence to Macy's. And I get my mom, whatever, what the hell did she need? Oh, chancletas, slippers. She always needed slippers. And I'm just like, you stay in the house all the time, Ma. How do you wear out all these slippers? What, are you stomping around the house like Godzilla or something? So I buy like three pairs. So she has enough slippers for a long time. And we go home. And we, we have our meal, you know, the takeout food and whatever, and it's, it's, it's all very cordial and very polite. I'm happy with my mom. My brother and I are just like distance, watchful peace. And when the meal is over and the visit's over, he walks me to the subway station, as he always does. And I say to him, you know, when I go up, when I go down, I say, listen, I'm sorry about what happened before. I'm, I appreciate everything you do for mom. I don't think your life is bad. Thank you. And he says to me, no, Michelle, thank you. And I'm like, 
Now I'm the crazy one here for what? And he goes, you don't get it, do you? He said, I do what you can't do. You do what I can't do. But it's okay because we do it together for mom. We're a team. We do it together. And I get on the train and on the long, endless ride back to Brooklyn, I start thinking that what I once saw as my brother's meekness was really his strength because he has the temperament for that endless monotony of day-to-day caretaking that would make me all take them and throw them in front of a train. I, my, uh, I, I can't. I don't have that personality for it. And he can do it. And I can't. And it's okay. And it's okay. And you know, no matter what happens between my brother and me, there may be other crises to come. I don't know. But I know that there will always will be three things that we can agree on. The genius of Star Trek, the glory of the Lord of the Rings, and those ginormously, ginormously frustrating effort New York Mets. When are they going to win a season? Arr! Anyway, thank you guys. Yes, I uh, share your frustration with the New York Mets. Not really, I'm a Yankee fan, but I thought I'd say that. So, um, I just want to remind you, after the show, I forgot to uh, mention this in the beginning, we have, uh, we would like to invite anyone up who would like to tell a story of their own. It's a feature we did last month. Uh, we, have, we call it Two Minute Tales. If you have a short, brief story that you would like to share, please let us know during uh, one of the breaks. I think that there was a sign-up sheet uh, going around, but uh, just raise your hand. I'll ask you if you want to tell your story. You have about two minutes, because storytelling is the world's oldest method of entertainment, information passing on, and we think that's very important trying to keep storytelling alive, and uh, much better than going like this, or being on the phone, or being in front of the computer, actually sitting in front of someone and having a conversation and telling a story. Yeah, isn't that incredible? Basically what I'm doing right now in telling a story. So, I want to bring up our next storyteller right now. He is a Moth Grand Champion. He runs his own show in New York at the Cornelia Street Cafe called New York Stories. Please welcome Mr. Jeff Rose. Thank you, sir. Hey, I want to say really quick, uh, if you are thinking at all about signing up, to that you should definitely do that because the show I run at Cornelia Street, we do that. There's some of the best stories. People get so rewarded by it. And our venue is so much smaller than this one. It's tiny. We're down in a basement. The, the tables, this table right here would not fit. We're just crammed in this little tiny space. So you have this beautiful place, you get to get up on stage, you should enjoy it. So just consider it. And I am actually gonna use the space a little bit. Uh, my first name is Jeff, my last name is Rose, and neither one of these two things is very interesting, actually, and I'm not going to mention them for the rest of the story. But my middle name is Pilant which is, I have been told, one of the rarest names in North America. I was told at some point in my life that this name came from a mysterious stranger who showed up at the time of the Cumberland Gap in Appalachia 
And when they took the census and they asked his name, he said his name was Pilant, P-I-L-A-N-T. And they wrote it down and it had never existed before then and they don't know where this guy came from and they don't know if he was running from something or if he just wanted to change his name because he thought it would be more interesting or why he ever would do this. Um, what I found out as an adult is that this story is actually a total lie. Um, the last name is actually English and it's fairly common. It's not very common, but it's fairly common. But this story stuck with me because it was what I always wanted to believe actually happened with the story because it's more interesting. It's a better story. Um, it comes from my mom's side of the family. Uh, the name does. And the story, I would guess, probably came from my grandmother, Pilant. Um, I would go and visit her every year in normal Illinois, which is a town that sounds like it's the hometown in a failed sitcom pilot. But, and it was kind of like that. It was just a little nothing town. But I would go to visit her there, and she would tell me these long, rambling stories about people she knew in normal Illinois. And I would sit there and listen to these. And they, the stories would start about 10 minutes uh, before the story should start and then they would usually kind of peter out somewhere after they kind of lost their way but they were still fascinating because I never really knew where she was going with it and I don't know if she really knew where she was going with it so you would hear these crazy things from her um, she would she would introduce herself as Helena Pilant she would say I'm Helena Pilant I'm five foot two I have eyes of blue and this is a great example of who she was because she would be looking right at you when she said that and you would notice that she actually only had one blue eye. She, she also had a hazel eye, which she could have just said, look, I have different colored eyes, which is, but she didn't do that. And I'm not sure why. It was either because she uh, didn't want to brag about the two different colored eyes or she secretly wanted blue eyes, but she still would say, I have eyes of blue to you, even though you could see that she didn't have eyes of blue. She also is probably only about five foot, actually, not five foot two. But this was who she was. So of all of these stories that she told to me, there was this one story that stuck with me more than any of the rest of them because it fit together. And it, it fits with Halloween and with, with October, so I'm going to tell it to you very quickly. Uh, it was from when she was first pregnant with her first child, my Uncle Johnny. Uh, she was, it was during the Depression, and uh, it would have been a little bit after the Depression, actually. And my grandfather worked in a candy factory and with his free time worked as the handyman in normal Illinois, and he would go around to all the houses and help them, uh, probably because he, it was a way to make extra money. He was a nice guy, and also he didn't have to listen to my grandmother talk as much while he was out of the house. So while he was out at this one house painting it down the street, he was painting the house of an old woman who was a fortune teller. And while he was painting it, the old woman's daughter came out, and... The daughter said, hey, thank you for doing all of this work, helping us out. We can't do it ourselves. Uh, we know that Helena is pregnant, so in exchange, we would like to give you a free reading. 
And this was, uh, the, the old woman was apparently a famous fortune teller, my grandmother told me. She had used to live in Chicago. She'd read the fortune of Al Capone. She was fantastic. And my grandfather, on the other hand, he doesn't really believe in this kind of nonsense. However, he's not going to pass up something someone is giving to him as a gift out of the kindness of their heart. So he goes home. He tells my grandmother. They get dressed up like they're going to go to church. And then they go back over to the house that evening to get their fortune read for her new baby. They go into the front of the house. The daughter ushers them in, tells them to wait. And then after a little bit, they get called into a back room through some curtains. And there the old woman is with her fortune-telling ball. And she sits, Helena sits down, my grandmother, and, and the old woman starts to go through all of the things, asking her questions about how she's been doing. And then suddenly the old woman turns white, turns just completely white. And she says, I can't see your pregnancy past the seventh month. And my grandmother says, is it going to be okay? Like, I, what, what do you mean you can't see it past the seventh month? And she, the old woman starts to shake a little, and she says, I, I just, I can't see it past the seventh month. And then my grandfather goes, what do you mean you can't see it past the seventh month? Because he's thinking, you know, if you're going to make up a story, why would you make up one that's going to make her think there's something wrong with her baby? So they storm out. They leave. My grandfather gets very upset. They get up, they leave, and they decide they're not going to talk to them anymore. So the pregnancy continues. My grandmother goes to the doctor a lot. She's very worried about whether or not she's going to have a miscarriage. And the seventh month comes, and the seventh month goes. And then at the end of the nine months, my Uncle Johnny is born, and he's perfectly healthy, large baby boy. Everyone is happy. And my grandfather thinks, I probably ought to go back to the fortune teller and apologize. So he goes back, and he knocks on the door, and the daughter answers the door, and he says, hey, I wanted to let you know that my son was born, we're very happy, and I'm sorry I haven't talked to you for all these months and how I left before. Uh, and the daughter says, oh, you didn't hear? My mom died two months ago. So my grandmother tells me this story, and I think, that's an incredible story, and it sticks with me. It's, it's one of those stories, I, I get into writing, I get into fiction. This is a story that I start going, is this an old TV show? Where did she get this story from? And I don't know. And I, I enjoy retelling it to people through my life. And I move from place to place, and sometimes I don't give my full name, and sometimes I tell people Pilant is a name from someone who comes from the Appalachia, who no one's ever heard of. And, and I, I basically enjoy all this. And, my grandmother gets older, and when I do talk to her on the phone, her stories get a little more circular, and the people get a little bit more confused, and they start repeating themselves much, much more. And then eventually one day, she gets to a point in her 90s where she just says she can't remember when you talk to her. And she has a heart attack, and she's in the hospital, and I have to go back. I have to go back home to visit her, and on the way to visit her, I'm talking to my mom, and I'm talking to my mom about stories that my grandmother used to tell, and I tell this story to my mom because I'm like, this is my favorite story, and I tell it to her, and my mom says, I've never heard that story before, and I'm like, well, that's really weird. You know, I, I, I thought it would be something she would tell a lot. It's a pretty good story. So we get into the hospital, and my grandmother is so tiny. She's just so small now. She looks much smaller than five foot in the bed. 
And my mom says, Jeff was telling me about the fortune teller who used to live near us. Do you remember? And my grandmother said, I, I don't remember. And, he, and, and, my, and my mom had heard of the fortune tellers. She was like, yeah, yeah, like the fortune teller. He told the story about when Johnny was pregnant. My grandmother goes, I don't remember. And then finally my mom goes, Jeff, just, just tell her the story. So I sit down next to my grandmother and I tell her the story about when she went to visit the fortune teller when she was pregnant and about how it went through everything. And I go to the end of the story, and at the very end of the story, my grandmother claps her hands and goes, woo! And then she, she stops and she goes, that's exactly how it happened. <laughs> Thank you, everyone. Jeff Rose. So my uh, parents moved to uh, Florida, and uh, they live in a condo community down there. And my aunt, uh, Shiffy, that is her real name, happens to bowl in the same league as uh, Larry David's father, Larry David from Curb Your Enthusiasm, because they grew up in the same neighborhood. Larry David grew up in Brooklyn, went to the same high school I did, and uh, I was down in Florida visiting my parents, and my aunt says to me, oh, uh, you have to meet this man, he's in our bowling league, um, his son is also in comedy, maybe you know him. So I go to pick up my parents at uh, the bowling alley, and she introduces me and says, oh, uh, this is Morty David. You may know his son, Larry. And I'm still a little slow on the uptake. I still don't put it together until he stands very close to me. And she says, oh, he says, oh, you know my boy, Larry? And I'm thinking, oh, Larry David. And he says, oh, yes, that's my boy. He did all the Seinfeld shows. And my aunt is behind him putting on her shoes, putting her bowling ball away. And he says to me, he says, uh, oh, you know my boy Larry? And I said, oh, yeah, I like all of the shows that were done in, uh, on Seinfeld when the, you know, he was in the condo in Florida. Meanwhile, behind, my, uh, behind this man, my aunt is going like this frantically. And I'm thinking, what is she talking about? He grabs my arm and says, no, that's not what happened. I told my boy Larry not to do shows about that. I had to leave the condo board because I had a gallbladder operation. People thought I was stealing money. <laughs> and he bought me that Cadillac. I didn't steal that. Everybody around here thought that I was stealing money, especially after the show came on. Everyone was shunning me. I got shunned. And he's yelling at me. I was shunned in my own neighborhood. Even my brother Shelly, he was shunning me. I was shunned by Shelly. He's yelling at me. And my aunt is like going like this in the background. And I'm realizing, oh my God, I'm in a Seinfeld episode. <laughs> we go driving back home. And my father's in the front. My aunt is in the back. And my aunt is yelling at me. Don't you know that when you go like this, it means stop talking? How would I know that? My father says, yes, you never shut up. Like you made fun of that man, Jaime, when we were playing ping pong. I didn't make fun of Jaime. I beat Jaime by two points. And I said, oh, you, I guess you're not a very good player. Jaime was very upset. He thinks you're an asshole. Then my aunt behind me says, well, I think you're an asshole now, too. You made Mr. You made Mr. Uh, David very, very upset. Now he's not going to come bowling again. And he's not going to be on my team. And he's a good bowler. He averages 130. Apparently, that's apparently a very good average in a senior citizen league. So we go out to eat later on, 
and we're eating in a, like a day or two later in a restaurant, and this man walks over, and my father's introducing, and he says, oh, uh, which one of you is Joey, the comedian? I go, oh, I'm Joey. He goes, oh, yeah, Morty thinks you're an asshole. <laughs> so I got, now I'm being shunned by my parents. So, well, um, can we get, I just want to thank all of the storytellers. Can we, uh, where are they? Are they all in the room? Can we get them to stand up or come up here? Rick, if you're upstairs, you can come down. Because I, I want to get everybody on stage who's a storyteller, because I'd like to get one picture of everybody, please. So we're going to all come back, which would be nice. Very, very nice. All come. Can someone, can someone take a picture? And then I, I'll give you my email address, because I'm not going to be there to actually take it. And my arms. Oh, we have some, a volunteer to take the picture. Just everyone. We can sort of all look like we're look like together. No one. Let's all stand okay. closer together, okay? All right. <laughs> Got it. Okay, thank you. Give them all a hand. Danny Ortiz, Jeff Rose, Rick Patrick, Michelle Carlo, Sammy, James, and Robin Gelfenbein. Thank you so much. So uh, I want to thank the wonderful Hopewell Theater for allowing us giving us their stage to tell some stories. Um, I also want to tell you a couple of things. Number one, uh, please check out the website, the, you know, the Hopewell Theater website, uh, for all of the storytelling shows that we have coming up. We have some marvelous shows coming up. November 2nd is the next uh, This Really Happened. Uh, December 7th is The Liar Show. October 20th is Mike Dugan, a very good friend of mine, a wonderful comedy writer. He wrote for many years for uh, The Dennis Miller Show. He's an Emmy Award winning writer. He wrote his own solo show called Men Fake uh, Foreplay. That's going to be on the stage right here. Yes, even the title is very funny. And then the, um, the night, I think it's the night after Thanksgiving. Is it, what, what night is Julia Scotty going to be here? Friday, the Friday after Thanksgiving, Julia Scotty is going to be here doing her show. Uh, Julia Scotty, who is a semi-finalist on uh, America's Got Talent, uh, she's been on many, many TV shows. She's had her own special on, um, on she was on Evening at the Improv, Comic Strip Live, just an absolutely phenomenal uh, comedian. Uh, you may know her from America's Got Talent. She actually came out as a transgendered woman on television nationally. Uh, in, on America's Got Talent. It was a wonderful moment, and she is uh, phenomenally funny, very tender, and just a wonderful show. So, let's have a hand for all of our storytellers again. Thank you very much. My name is Joey Novick, and I want to thank all of you for joining us tonight. Take care. Bye-bye. For more information on This Really Happened and other programs in our selectively eclectic lineup, please visit HopewellTheater.com.